Welcome to Epiphany Brooklyn's podcast. I am Brandon Watts, lead pastor here at Epiph. Thanks so much for tuning in. Our desire is to join Jesus in his mission to redeem our city. May God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing so that you can tune in each week. Grace and peace. Well, it is an honor to pastor this church. I'm excited to pastor. I'm equally excited to preach today. So grab your Bibles and meet me in Romans chapter 9. It is my desire to uh, polish off an entire chapter today, uh, which is a big deal because a few weeks ago we only did two verses. So I'm excited today that we'll knock off a whole chapter. Who, who brought their physical copies? Who has a physical copy of your Bible? Hold them up, hold them up, hold them up. I see that phone, put that down, hold them up. Physical copies, physical copies. The rest of you look around. These are the people that love Jesus more than you. I'm not joking, I'm serious. Yes, yeah, yeah, this type of church, we're very shady, very, very shady. We've made a commitment to go through all of Romans 9, um, uh, Romans, the book of Romans, 16 chapters uh, in its totality. And, um, you know, I've made that commitment to you guys a, over a year ago that we would not be detoured. We'll make it all the way through unless Jesus comes back. We took a little break after chapter 7 uh, with the hope of gaining some, a little bit more energy and doing some other topical stuff that we think the Lord was calling us to preach on. Uh, but we, we believe that the best way to engage a body is literally by going through, through the scripture verse by verse and line by line. Our church is big on what's called text-driven preaching. In other words, I don't add into the text what I want to say, but whatever Paul said is good for the church at Rome, so therefore it's good for us. Can we say amen to that? So I don't know about you, but I, I appreciate text-driven preaching. Um, here's the downfall with it, and I've shared this before. It causes you to address stuff that you typically wouldn't address. If I can be honest, can I lay my cards on the table and be honest with y'all? I'd have probably skipped Romans 9. I did not wake up this morning like, yes, we preach in Romans 9 today. It's a little rough today, if I'm be honest with you. When I was in school, um, I did an intensive course. It was four hours long. It was a shortened course, but it was, each class was four hours long. And we spent two entire classes on Romans chapter 9. And the reason we did is because it, 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 is, it, is, it can be very difficult to wrap your mind around. Sometimes it pushes against what you naturally believe about God. And, and, and so I have a mentor that told me, if you're going to be a punk, at least hide behind the text. So that's what I'm going to do today. It's a little lengthy in its, um, in its, in its reading, but please bear with me. I, I want to read it all because I, I can't work through every single uh, verse, but I think the context is going to be important for us. All right, verse one. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and an uh, an unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers and kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. And to them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all blessed forever. Amen. Verse six, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Please underline verse, the B part of verse six, for not all who are descendants from Israel belong to Israel. 
And not all who are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of, of the promise are, uh, are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca has conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not, this is very important, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose underlined this of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls us. She was told the older will serve the younger. That is countercultural in this time. Verse 13 is hard. Please underline it. As it is written, Jacob, I love, but Esau, I hate it. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills. Please underline this one as well. And he hardens whomever he wills. You will say then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel of honor and another for dishonorable use? What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but from the Gentiles, as indeed he says to Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who has not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand in the sea, watch this, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully without delay. And, and Isaiah predicted, as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would be like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued the law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it was based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. I want to preach from the topic really posed as a question. Really, God? Let's look to the Lord before we dig in and pray. 
Father, we agree with the words of Isaiah in Isaiah 55. For your thoughts are higher than our thoughts and your ways are higher than our ways. And so, Father, would you settle us where we don't understand you? Will you, will, you, will you rest the questions on our heart in a way that if we get the answers here on earth, praise God, but if we don't, I can't wait till we get face to face with you. Where honestly, Lord, I don't think any of us will have any more questions. We will just bask in your presence. And so, Father, I pray, oh God, while we're on earth, will we make sense of what you've given us today? It's in Christ's name we give glory. Amen. Amen. When it comes to preaching on heaven and hell, um, if we're not careful, we can swing the pendulum too far one or two ways. The first way that we swing the, swing the pendulum in preaching on heaven and hell is an overemphasis on hell and damnation. Back in the day, we used to call these fire and brimstone preaching. I mean, everybody in the church was going to hell at some point. Uh, it, it, was, it was very clear that if, if, if you sipped a little bit of Pinot Noir, you were going to hell. If you wore pants I, in, in church where you're supposed to wear skirts, I need somebody Pentecostal to just say amen right there. Start speaking in tongues or something right there. If you grew up in one of those churches and you walked in the church without the skirt on, you were going to hell. If, if that lady cut you off as she was running on the train and you slipped a cuss word in, you were going to hell. If you watched that Netflix series and you knew it was a little risque, you're going to hell. And so what happens with fire and brimstone preaching is typically the overemphasis on hell and damnation typically causes us to become more legalistic and law keeping as though you get to heaven by obeying rules instead of enjoying the freedom that we have in Christ. And so this fire and brimstone preaching is a dangerous one. But if you swing the pendulum too far the other way. You actually have someone that ignores hell altogether, preaching that will not preach on hell, preaching that will not preach on sin. And that typically shows up in preaching that says you're living your best life right now. If you swing that pendulum too far the other way, it is just as dangerous. And I have a concern with some of the preaching that I've seen that is always preaching on uh, things in the earth right now that are going to make you so great and never preach on what's in the text, which Jesus even preached on hell and preached on the gnashing of teeth. But he also preached on heaven. And if you're not careful, we will act like hell doesn't even exist. And, and many times we do this because we're trying to gain popularity and become Christian celebrities. What is that? What is a Christian celebrity? Typically what we say is we won't, we won't preach on hell because that won't gain Facebook followers. That's not catchy on social media. And so we won't preach on hell and we'll say things like, I, I, I just want to gain enough followers and gain my, make my platform bigger and make my name greater because then I will have access to preach the gospel in ways that nobody else can. But if God is limited by the size of your platform, then he's not really God. God is not in heaven going, oh my God, please make that platform bigger because I can't get the gospel out without you. Last time I checked, the Bible says that he gave Jesus a name that's above all names. I want his platform to enlarge and therefore I have to preach stuff that even he believed. And so if you swing the pendulum too far, either way, it is dangerous. And my greatest fear is that I've seen both of these play out over the last few months on social media. 
where the preacher and fire and brimstone preacher says, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, you're going to hell. And then the other guy on the other side says, there is no hell, there is no hell. Live your best life now. And what I love about Paul today is he brings balance to the conversation of heaven and hell. But he does so in presenting to us God's selective sovereign choice. But I'll be honest with you that he does so in a way that is not palatable for even Christians. Can I be honest that Romans 9 ruffles my feathers a little bit? Oh, y'all act like every verse you agree with? I, didn't, I, didn't, I just didn't wake up this morning going, man, this is the passage. This, this is actually a space-making sermon. I mean, look around. It's tight. This is one of those sermons that people are going to be like, I don't agree with that. And because I don't agree with that, uh, as though it is not true, just because you don't agree doesn't mean that it's not true. And so what Paul is going to lay out before us is Paul is going to lay out some heavy truth. Let, let, let me pass through the room real quick. Be careful, very careful of being selective in what you choose to believe about the word and what you choose not to. You, you, don't, you and I don't have editorial rights over the text. Here's the beauty of the Bible. You can rip it out of one Bible, but it's going to be in another one because God's word is true. God's word will not be tampered with by creation. And many times that's what we do. We'd be like, man, I'm going to agree with the ones that's culturally relevant for me. But the ones that I don't agree with, it's almost like we treat the word of God like a buffet. I'm going to pick and choose what I want to eat and what I don't want to eat. I will skip over. But 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for correction and for teaching and for instructions in righteousness. And so Paul today is going to lay out some, he's walking heavy today. He's going to lay out some truth that uh, might be hard for you, but let me caution you never to think that you're smarter than God. You, you, I, if you had your choice to write Romans 9, trust me, you're not smarter than God. You, I know you got your, you passed the bar exam. I got you. I know you got a 1500 on the SATs out of 1600. I got you. But I promise you, your wisdom pales into comparison to the wisdom of God because you don't know what's going to happen tonight. God knows what's happening 100 years from now. He is wiser than us. He is smarter than us. And so as we sit in Romans 9, please don't disconnect uh, because you, if you don't agree, you might just simply line right up. It took me a few years to wrestle through Romans 9 to get to the place where I'm solid on it, man. I'm solid on it, but it, it, it didn't start there for me. And so look how Paul starts the chapter. He starts it in an interesting way. He, he does not start going right in on them. He lays foundation. Verse one, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. It is almost as though Paul is saying the same thing in verse one, three different ways. He's saying, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, but let let me give it to you another way. I'm not lying. Just in case you don't believe me, I have to say it another way. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. In other words, Paul, before he gets to the tough stuff, he wants you to know, I'm telling you something that is true. And to prove that is true, I'm going to pull in two witnesses. He says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. He says, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. And so what is easy for us to do is read the rest of Romans 9 and be like, ah, that ain't true. But Paul is like the same way you rejoiced in chapter 8 because you knew it was true. There is therefore no condemnation. 
You think who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies and we rejoice. And Paul is like, I'm glad you rejoice. Keep rejoicing because Romans 9 is just as true as Romans 8. Romans 9 is just as true as the promises that he gave us. And so he's begging us not to disconnect because he knows that his readers, a Jewish audience and the, the Gentiles that are being saved, he knows that this is not palatable for him. He literally says at one point in verse six, I know y'all think y'all all going to heaven, but some of y'all ain't making it. That's what he's saying to them. And that is hard, especially in a culture. Can y'all agree with me in a culture that I mean, praises us to be inclusive. Paul is simply saying, nah, not in Christianity. Not not in the faith. And so he lays that out in Romans chapter nine. He says, I'm speaking the truth. Here it is in Christ. Most commentators suggested that Paul is making an oath right here. He's saying what I'm saying in Romans nine is true. And if you want to believe that is true, Christ backs me up. Christ believes that is true. It's almost like back in the day, you know, you, you, you'd say something and you wanted the person to know that it was true. So you'd be like, yo, all my moms. That, that means it's really true, true. Because I ain't just putting that on my mom. You, or back in, y'all didn't do this in New York, but I grew up in Jersey. And in, in Jersey, you would say something and to, uh, to show the validity of what you're saying, you would say word is bond. I know y'all didn't say that here. But in Jersey, we would say word is bond. That means what I'm saying is really true. Paul does not call on mom dukes to say what I'm saying in Roman 9 is true. He says, no, Christ bears me witness. He he says the Holy Spirit bears me witness. And so what Paul is laying out before us is I'm telling you the truth. But let me get us broader than just the words of Romans 9 and just the words of Paul. Let me get us to all of scripture. All of scripture is true. You know how I know all of scripture is true? Because God is the superintendent of scripture. And the Bible tells me that God cannot lie. And I get it, man. We live in a world that is you're consistently having having to differentiate between what's genuine and what's fake. You're, you're, You're constantly trying to do that. And so in doing that, what happens is if you're not careful, you will lump the Bible in your set of doubts. I get it. I know there are some passages that are hard to understand. There are some doctrines that are hard to understand. There are some stories that's like, God, did that really happen? How about the preservation of scripture? It was tampered with down through. Nah, not really. I mean, if, if you really want to study the history of the canon and the history of scripture, I mean, look all the way back. There's manuscripts from the second century that are consistent with what's on your phone right now. That's how true the scriptures are. And so Paul is saying, listen, three ways. I'm telling the truth. I am not lying. And my conscience bears me witness. Even Jesus believed in the validity of scripture. John chapter 17. Write this down, y'all. John 17, 17. It says, sanctify them in your truth. For your word is your truth. In other words, Paul is like, the word of God sanctifies us. And why? Because it is true. Because it is God's word. If you want to know, I can tell how much you believe in the truthfulness of scripture by how much you obey it. I mean, if you, if you really believe that it is God's word, you will, you will strive to obey. You might fall, but you will strive to keep obeying the word of God. Even the passages that you don't agree with, you'll strive and strive and strive. And so your obedience is the, it shows, it shows all of us. It's the marker or of if you believe in the truthfulness of scripture. So Paul says it three ways. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness. Now that I've told you I'm not lying, 
Let me give you the tough stuff. Watch the stuff that he says in here. I'm going to bounce around. So whoever's doing the scriptures, try try to keep up. I'm going to move quickly here. Watch what he says at the end of verse six, which would have rocked the Jewish audience. For not all of you who are descendants of Israel belong to Israel. I know that doesn't weigh on us in here, but that, that would have been meaty for them. Look at verse 11. Though they were not born yet and had not done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls us. In other words, Paul just said in verse 11, God's sovereign choice has nothing to do with you doing good or bad. It is simply his election. Okay, he goes on in verse 13. This one's really tough. I wrestled with verse 13. He says, as it, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Okay, he goes on in verse 15 to say, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this reason, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you on the earth so that he has mercy on whom he wills. This one's hard for me. And he hardens whomever he wills. He goes on in verse 21. It says, has a potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honor? And he makes the other one for dishonorable use. Be part of verse 22 says vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for his glory. Paul literally just takes us and punches us in our face. Paul literally, he drops some of the heaviest doctrine on us. And what, what really what he's the doctrines he's laying on us right now is called the doctrine of predestination or election. The, doc, the doctrine of God's sovereign choice. And, and th- th- this is really honestly a hard pill for us to swallow because what Paul is saying is that God chooses some to be saved. When we had our covenant community class, the group that just joined, I, I don't know if she's in here, but one of the young ladies, we were talking about the sovereignty of God and his selection. And one young lady says, okay, I have a question. I get it. God chooses some to be saved, but is it also true that he chooses some not to be saved? And that is a hard question but that's exactly what Paul is saying. Paul is literally saying it is God's choice to choose whoever he wants to be saved. And it is also his choice, choice not to save some. So he says stuff like Jacob, I loved and Esau, I hated. I wrestled with this idea that God actually hated Esau. Now, before you praise Jacob too much and be like, yeah, he chose Jacob because he knew that Jacob would eventually choose him. Can I promise you that Jeremiah 17 says our hearts are deceitful and wicked and it's desperately sick. Sick hearts don't choose God. We, we, we have nothing in us to choose God. If you've trusted in Jesus, you didn't choose God. God chose you that gave you the ability to choose him. I, I got saved uh, later on in, in, in my late 20s. And got saved in the parking lot of a church and a young, young man was sharing the gospel with me. And in sharing the gospel with me, God saved me. And it was that moment that I chose to give my, give my life to the Lord. But looking in retrospect, I didn't really choose to give my life to the Lord. He chose me, which ignited something in my heart called regeneration that causes me then to be able to choose him. You don't have it in you to choose God. 
You need God to choose you. You need God to select you. And, and, and so he, he says stuff in here that is hard for me. He says stuff like, Jacob, I love. Esau, I hate. In other words, Jacob, even though Jacob doesn't, Jake, Jacob was a swindler. Jacob don't deserve to be saved. To Jacob, Jacob, like we're not sitting here going, yeah, I get it. Jacob, is, no, Jacob deserves what Esau got. But he does. He says, Jacob, I love and Esau, I hated John 15. You should write this one down. Verse 16. Jesus says, you didn't choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And so Jacob is not chosen because he is so special. Here's why he's chosen. Chosen because God is merciful. I always wrestled and I don't know if you feel the tension. It's okay if you do. We one of them churches that we can be honest if you feel the tension of Esau. I hate it. I get that. But when I first became a Christian, I wrestled with the fact that he said he hated Esau. But now that I've walked with the Lord a little bit and I've applied the gospel to my life, I'm no longer confused on how he hated Esau. I'm confused that he loved Jacob. Like, how do you love somebody who is a swindler? Both of them deserve hell. And if one of them gets heaven, it ain't nothing but mercy. It ain't nothing but grace. And so let me point you not to the B part of verse 13, but sit in the first part. God loves Jacob. God loves me. God loves you. And the fact that heaven will have anybody in it is sheer mercy. Do do you know how many times he talks about mercy in this passage? I mean, I'm going to just do the electric slide through it. Verse 15, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy and I have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 16, it depends not on human will, but on a God who has mercy. So then uh, verse 18, so then he has mercy on whom he wills. Verse 23, in order to make known his riches for glory, his vessels of mercy. The fact that you were chosen is sheer mercy. Sheer God's grace. And so Jacob here deserves what Esau got, but he didn't get it. We always think about how amazing grace is, but can I promise you mercy is just as amazing. That God looked down from heaven and saw you and chose you. That, that, that should help you to rejoice in a good and a merciful God. So he reaches back, Paul reaches back in the Old Testament and he says, let me teach you about election. Jacob, I love Esau, I hate it. I'm reaching back to a old story, but he knows that we'll still be confused. So he says, let me give you one more, Moses and Pharaoh. He then goes to Moses and Pharaoh in verse 15. Are y'all rocking with me? In verse 15, he says, for he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I have compassion on whom I have compassion. Jump down to verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that by that by my might, that my might might be proclaimed in the earth. So then it, uh, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. This is a hard passage. He, he literally says, God, I, I've hardened Pharaoh's heart. This is in Exodus chapter 9, verse 12 is where, uh, as well, where God looks down and says, I'm going to harden his heart. And I don't, if I'm honest, I don't fully understand it, but here's what I can see from it. That one man's heart being hardened saved millions. Millions got delivered out of Egypt because God looked down and said, I'm hardening that one heart. And, and I know it's rough, but just like I didn't want to point you to Esau, but wanted to point you to Jacob, let me not point you to Pharaoh's hard heart and point you to the fact that Moses was saved. Moses don't deserve to be saved. Okay, let's do it this way. Pharaoh was a murderer. 
Moses, Moses, y'all remember when he murdered the Egyptian? And so honestly, Moses deserves what Pharaoh got. The fact that Moses is accepted is mercy. And so what I'm trying to point you to, even in a hard doctrine such as election, I'm trying to point you to the fact that none of us deserve election. But if God and he is in control of all things, if he chooses some, that is mercy. So I know what you're doing. You're sitting there going, ah, Pastor B, I'm feeling you, but God is a little unjust. And I got you. Like, I, I, I can see how you feel that God is unfair in this passage, but Paul directly addresses that in verse 14. In verse 14, he says, what should we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And he answers with a strong answer, by no means. None of us in this room can look and say that God is unjust because he chooses to save some and he doesn't choose to save any. Nobody should be saved. So God is not unjust. In fact, we have a very skewed view of of justice anyway. See, we don't understand justice according to the gospel. We understand justice according to the culture. According to the culture, justice means you get what you deserve. But on the cross, you get what you don't deserve. And Christ got what he didn't deserve. But at the cross, there is a balance of perfect justice and perfect mercy. Here's the justice. Your sin was paid for. Here's the mercy. You didn't pay for it. This, this, is, this is the beauty of the gospel. And so when this text says, is God unjust? None of us in this room can say God is unjust. He chose to save some. Praise God. Let's do it this way. I got up early this morning and I felt, I felt an Oprah spirit on me. I felt like being generous today. I got some money and I'm legit. I'm legit going like, to listen, y'all. This illustration done three services cost your boy. I, I just want to know. So I, I want to give this. I want to give all of this money out to people that really, really want it. By a show of hands, like who would just like, man, just give me some money. All right. I see you. I see you. I see you. You know, I'm going to come around. You know, the, the, the wall here deserves a little blessing. I can't give it to everybody. Let me see. Let me see. Let me see, let me see, let me see. Who can, who, 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 who can do the best Millie Rock? <laughs> I got to give it to her. Oh, wait, 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 wait. I got more. I got more. I got more. I'm coming across. Listen, listen. If, if, you're, if you're standing, that means you're choosing me. But remember, I'm choosing you. Who else? Who else? I see you. I'm coming. I'm coming over there. Let's see. You You what? You broke? <laughs> She's like, you better be lying in church. You can go get you a number seven with cheese at McDonald's. Let's see, who else? Who else? I'm going to come around. I'm going to come around. I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm coming. Well, I, I need to know what gifting y'all got. We got to put that on display here. Who, who can sing? Who can sing? Nah, Chelsea can't do it, baby. Y'all put your hands down. You can sing? Hit, hit a note for us. Give us something. Say no more. You got it. I got more money. I'm coming through. I'm coming through. I see those hands. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. I got more money. I got more money. You got to have some giftings, though. I'm going to just pass out. I, I, is this your first time here? Third time here? I, no, I'm joking. 
Let's do one more. Let's do one more. Let's do one more. Let's do one. Oh my gosh. The, I'm, I'm going to give it to, this is for the baby. Give this to the baby. Oh man, I, I always give y'all money though. So here's my question. Here, here's my question to everybody in the room. Those of you who did not receive, was I unjust to you? Somebody said yes. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Who said yes? Okay, see, here's the question. Here's the question. Remember a couple of weeks ago when we were in the end of Romans chapter 8 and and Paul says, uh, can anybody bring any charge against God's elect? And then he says, it's God who justifies. We define that justifying and being unjust is legal terminology. So here's my question to you. Can you legitimately bring me up on any charges in a court? See, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I, I think if you did bring me up, if you, if you sued me in any way and said he gave out money to everybody and didn't give me no money, if the court w- looked at this case, he wouldn't only dismiss this case, he would say, you didn't deserve it, and the people that did get it got grace. They didn't deserve it either. And in a greater way, this is what Paul is saying. Paul passed out, God passed out salvation and those who did not receive it doesn't mean he was unjust. He was gracious to the ones that did get it. And so I want us to rest in that. Remember the story of Noah? In the story of Noah, God literally wipes out all of humanity. And you know what's so deep about God? God could have wiped out all of humanity and started completely from scratch he could have made a new adam he could have made a new eve and did it like that he doesn't do that though he kills everybody and saves eight noah and his family you got noah you got his three sons you got noah's wife and you got uh, their three wives and so you have eight people that are saved that did not deserve salvation now i know the text tells me that that noah was a righteous man but can did you read the end of chapter eight? Oh, noah acts a fool Noah gets off the boat and he plants a vineyard and he gets sloppy drunk and I have a little grace for him because you spend 40 days on the boat with your family. You're going to need a little something, something too. A little Ciroc, not, not the pineapple, it's too sweet. I, I wouldn't know that though. I wouldn't know that though. I don't know anything about that. I do not know this man. Noah gets saved with eight people and Noah deserved what everybody else got. And so in other words, the fact that God saved eight people is grace. We run too quickly at the fact that he wiped out humanity and don't sit in the fact that it grieved him to his heart. And therefore he decided, (laughs) he decided to give mercy. He decided to give mercy to eight people. You keep talking long enough and just stuff just comes out. Now, here's what happens with this passage. I don't have enough time here. Here's what happens with this passage. When you read passages like this, it's easy for us to walk away and say, God, you've already predestined who's saved and who's not. Therefore, why do I have to evangelize? Is anybody thinking that? Like, why, why do I have to share the gospel? Every week I come, you say, share my faith. Why? You've already determined who's going to make it and who's not. But at the expense of going against what my uh, professor of preaching taught me in school, go back to verse two. Look at verse two. Paul says here, he says that I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I, I could wish that I myself would be accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers 
my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul literally, even though he's preaching predestination, he's preaching election, he's preaching about the sovereignty of God, he's also preaching to have a burden for people that don't know the Lord. He has such a burden that he says, I wish I myself could be cut off to save my kinsmen, my fellow Jews. I wish that they would be saved and I'm not now. Listen, I, I, I love uh, lost people, uh, but not at the expense of my spot in heaven. I got a spot picked out at Jesus' feet. And, and, and so when you understand what Paul is saying, Paul is saying, I know I'm preaching on election, but don't let that numb you to the fact that there are lost people. When I'm preaching this, I know you sitting there going, I got an uncle that don't know the Lord. Is he a vessel of dishonor? I have I had lunch with, with, with uh, somebody earlier this week and they were telling me about their son that that possibly doesn't know the Lord. When, when you sit and you wrestle through that, it's like, is he uh, uh, someone that you would consider an Esau? But I love Paul because even when you go to the next chapter, I don't have time to deal with it. But when we get there, I'll preach it in Romans chapter 10. He asked four questions and those four questions are powerful. Here's the four questions that he asked in chapter 10. He says, how would they call on him who they have not believed? How are they to believe in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are we to preach unless we have been sent? In other words, Paul is expressing that you need to have an anguish over people that don't know the Lord because it does not matter if right now they don't know him. It doesn't matter if they trifling right now. It doesn't matter if they believe in their own self-righteousness. Right now, it is the gospel that is able to save them. And therefore, you should continue to pursue them. Because you don't know who God chose. I don't know who's on the list. And so therefore, I'm going to pursue like everybody is. I'm going to keep running. I'm going to keep pursuing my lost family. And see, what we do is we be like, ah, I don't believe in that deathbed repentance, though. They've been living their life one way. The whole. But I'm like, yo, what happened to the man on the cross? Jesus said, today you're going to be with me in paradise. That's death. He died after that. And he got the same thing that you and I got, even if you trusted in Jesus for 50 years. And so in other words, never stop pursuing people because you think that they are too far or you think that God didn't select them. You and I don't know. And here's the proof, uh, uh, the hope that's in this passage that God is still saving people. And what I love about it is I I know that he's able to reach even the lost, even the furthest one because he saved me. Anybody that's not, you got saved not off of privilege, but by mercy. Anybody that got saved off pure mercy. And so as we sit in this passage, and I'm over time here, as we sit in this passage and we consider how hard this passage is, I want to ask you, do you have a burden for people that don't know the Lord? Have you judged them too quickly? Have you counted them out too quickly? Let me ask it this way. Rhetorical question. Look straight because I don't want nobody thinking I'm talking to you. Here's my question. We're in March now. Those of you who have trusted in Jesus, have you shared your faith with anybody all year? From January 1 to now, have you, have you told someone about the goodness and the grace and the mercy of Jesus that you've been extended? Here's a reality. Most of us would rather be a part of a body. We just don't want to help add to it. And it's a danger. It's a, it's a, it's a danger to read Romans 9 and be numb to lost people. Because here's what I know. I once was lost. Here's how I'll end. If if this passage rubs you the wrong way, if it causes you to question the character and the goodness of God, 
you can be honest with God. You, 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 can, you can pray with all honesty. There's some prayers in Psalms that I'm like, yo, knock the teeth out my enemy's mouth. I'm like, yo, you said that to God? That there, there, is some, there are some prayers in the book of Psalms that I'm like, yo, that is brutal honesty. And here's what I want to charge you with. If you're wrestling with this passage, don't go toe-to-toe with me. Go toe-to-toe with God. You won't last five minutes. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, we thank you, O oh God, for this passage. You, you, you've called us to preach the entire counsel of God's word. I, I think I was honest with the church today that I, I would have skipped this passage. But you, you've called me, O oh God, to preach everything that's in front of us. And so, Father, I, I pray, O oh God, I, I, the one that doubts your goodness and your grace, and if you're just... Father, help us to align with you and realize, even if we're a Christian, help us to realize, oh God, that you really do have higher thoughts than us. You do stuff that I don't always understand. And Father, if I'm honest, I'm happy that I don't understand because I know if I was able to figure you out, I would manipulate you. If I was able to figure you out, I'd control you. But the fact that you are so complex means that you really are God. And I look forward to the day that we'll be face to face with you. There's no more crying and no more dying and no more weeping and no more sadness. I look forward to that day, but until that day comes, I'll rejoice even in gray areas because I know you got the whole thing under control. Pray for those that don't know the Lord in here. Father, we we wanna see them meet you. Jesus dies on a cross for our sins presents us with a brand spanking new righteousness that we could never attain on our own as the text says not by human will or exertion father we we and i look forward to the day we stand before you and we stand before you screaming what this text screams mercy none of us will stand before you screaming justice because if you give us justice we're done We'll plead, Lord. We'll say, I'm guilty and I need your grace. So, Father, would you do a work in our hearts, oh God, even in a passage like this? Save somebody today off a passage like this because your word will not come back void. It's in Christ's name we give all glory. Amen.